Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Serial killer John Wayne Gacy was an aspiring politician, beloved local contractor, and part-time clown for hire who murdered 33 young men between 1972 and 1976. The majority of his victims were found buried under his home in a quiet northwest suburb in Chicago. I'm going to leave it there because there's a lot to talk about in, uh, regarding this film. And I'm looking forward to our conversation with our guest today, the director and producer the documentary series Conversations with a Killer, the John Wayne Gacy tapes, and that would be Joe Berlinger. Joe, welcome back to Film School Radio. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. How you doing? I just want to, before we get too far into this, I want to let people know that some of your previous work includes Brothers Keeper, Crude, Metallica, Some Kind of Monster, as well as a precursor to this film and Conversations with a Killer, the Ted Bundy tapes. Tell me a little bit about what led up to your embarking on this particular project based on John Wayne Gacy. Yeah, I mean, the practical backstory is that I did um, Conversations with the Killer, the Ted Bundy tapes for Netflix in 2019, uh, and it turned out to be incredibly popular. I was surprised at how popular it was. I think Netflix was surprised. It was the number one unscripted slash documentary show uh, of 2019 on Netflix. A lot of people tuned in. Um, and so this idea of retelling a story that many people know, but through a social justice lens uh, seems to have worked, but I wasn't necessarily planning on doing another one, but somebody out there heard, watched the show and said, hey, I've got some Gacy tapes. So of course, sometimes projects find you as opposed to you find them. And so uh, I listened to the tapes and I thought there was something uh, equally as compelling as the Bundy tapes, which is this deep dive into this uh, psychological portrait of, of, of a sociopath. But in addition, and Gacy in particular, uh, is a story that has such police incompetence bordering on, on malfeasance uh, of how Gacy was allowed to flourish for so long and go undetected, largely because of the prevailing attitudes towards the gay community at the time um, that I think stepping back and looking at this story through a 2022 social justice lens was a good opportunity to kind of peel that layer apart. I mean, just how badly the police botched this, you know, and how long it took for him to be brought to justice. Uh, just, yeah. you know, cause I, I mean, it's funny, I'm considered a true crime filmmaker, whatever that term means. I have as much, uh, disdain for the word true crime as I as I embrace it as well because I consider myself more of a social justice documentarian and to me there's a social justice aspect to this you know how is it that he was allowed to you know why were those prevailing attitudes so you know made it impossible for this guy to be caught earlier it's just a horrible story of all of these innocent victims that it could have been avoided yeah and you mentioned the tapes, 60 hours and, uh, of tapes of his conversations with others. But, uh, but going back to what you just described, there is something profoundly 
political about who's investigated, who's arrested, who's prosecuted, who, who spends time in prison in our country for, for a lot of different reasons. So pulling back sort of the, the covers on all of those things and to the extent you wanna get into it, John Wayne Gacy had some profile before all of this, all of these things came to light. And it was a political, not, we wouldn't call him a powerful political figure, but he had some standing in the community that may have yeah. provided him with a little bit of a sort of an initial um, protection, right? Is that fair? I, I don't think people were protecting him who thought he was, you know, they thought he was a bad guy, and they, but they were, he was using his political connections to, to cover it up. I just think, you know, one of the, one of the, my core theses for why I do all of these shows and why it's important to keep telling these stories right. is that the people you least expect and most often trust are the ones who usually do evil. That's been my conclusion in 30 years of true crime filmmaking. In fact, I have been strangely enough doing it for 30 years because Brothers Keeper came out in January of 92. So this has been going, somehow I keep making these films for 30 years. Um, I guess people are enjoying them uh, that I can keep working, which is nice. We want to think that serial killers are, you know, serial killers all the time, meaning they, emerge from the shadows with, you know, their fangs dripping with blood. And, you know, like it falsely implies to us that you can identify a serial killer from a, a mile away because they're always evil. They're always acting this way. And that gives us a false sense of comfort that, oh yeah, well, you know, I, I'm not going to become a victim to a serial killer because I, I, I'll see one, I'll, I'll spot them, uh, you know, a mile away. But the, the, the reality is whether it's a priest who commits pedophilia or a Bernie Madoff who, you know, used trust and, and his avuncular attitude to bilk billions out of people, um, it's usually the people you least expect and most often trust right. who do evil things. And so Gacy was, you know, was the epitome of that. He was the local Democratic precinct captain. He was a busy local contractor who hired local kids. He was a part-time clown. Um, he rubbed shoulders with Rosalind Carter when she visited Chicago, when she was the first lady. And he had a Secret Service clearance pin, of all things, that allowed him to be in, be in communication and in, literally shoulder to shoulder with Rosalind Carter. So I don't think his political connections got him off because they were political connections. I just think everyone thought he was a good guy. Yeah, that's exactly I. I... Thank you. I didn't mean to infer that that was, it's just that they didn't want to believe it. Initially, they did, just could not believe someone of this, uh, that, that kind of- They couldn't believe it. And you know, when I started the Bundy Project, when, those, when the tapes first came to me, I listened to them and thought they were compelling, but I thought to myself, boy, this story is well known. Like, how am I going to do something different? Even with the tapes, it's just, is there is there a place to retell the story? Even if you retell it with a kind of modern social justice lens, and my two college-age daughters were home for vacation, both incredibly bright young women going to excellent colleges. Um, and I said, do you know who Ted Bundy is? And they didn't know. And I said, text some of your friends. I'm just curious if people know who Ted Bundy is. And for the most part, 80% of the people they reached out to had no idea who he was. And, a, and the other 20%, no real details, just, oh, yeah, wasn't he a serial killer? And so that suggested to me, well, there is 
an opportunity to retell the story through a modern social justice lens for a, a younger generation, because that's a lesson I want my daughter to have, which is just because somebody looks and acts a certain way, it doesn't mean you should trust them. Somebody really needs to earn your trust and don't put yourself in, into a situation, you know, where the person you trust can turn out to be somebody like Ted Bundy, which I know is a negative lesson to put out there, but I think, I think it's an important one. Yeah, I agree with you. I want to let our listeners know that Conversations with a Killer, the John Wayne Gacy tapes, it's now available on Netflix right, cool. and uh, be looking for it. And it is a three-part series and the cumulative effect of what you just described comes out in many different ways in this film over the course of those three episodes and, it, and in the layers and the nuances and the time and place. And you mentioned early on in our conversation, the idea about the gay community and its standing, if that's the right way to put it, within, within law enforcement back in the 1970s uh, was, uh, was a factor in all of this, right? Big factor. Big factor. Yeah. People were afraid to come forward because homosexuality was against the law uh, in some places. So people were afraid to come forward or Gacy preyed upon you know runaways you know kids often you know were forced to leave home because their parents wouldn't accept their sexuality or kids left home because they were afraid to come out they congregated in in you know in in places where they were like-minded people because they were afraid of you know that's you know they were afraid of interacting any other way and that's that's where gacy you know cruised those gay bars to try to find his next victim uh, if if you reported something to the police, half the time they didn't take it seriously, uh, and sometimes people were afraid to report it to the police. So uh, it was it was a terrible time. I mean, you know, there were television specials on in the mid seventies. We we see a, a glimpse of it in our docu series, where there you know it was still considered to be you know an illness to be okay. homosexual. So yeah, it was just not a good time, and that just added added to why not added it is the reason he was allowed to flourish for so long there are other factors too you know yeah. forensic the, the state of forensic investigation isn't what it is today there was no dna technology police departments strangely enough and and you see this as a common thread through all of the you know the serial killers of the 70s and 80s Dahmer, gacy Bundy, police departments didn't share information. I mean, there was no central database. The whole idea of criminal profiling was, you know, was kind of born with Bundy. But before then, there was, you know, police departments just didn't share info, which is mind-boggling today. You know. Well, here in California, we had our share of serial killers, and it was around this time, the '70s and '80s, when those when those crimes began became became part of our vernacular. A yeah. serial killer wasn't really something. That prior to that would have been you wouldn't have said that i mean even though i'm sure throughout the course of human history there have been multiple murders by one person nonetheless it became something that was horrifying it wasn't just horrifying for the victims and their families but horrifying on a social level sort of a even a political level yeah. in the sense of fear and law and order became more and more of a drumbeat for around these yes exactly you know, yeah, I mean, the profiling began with basically the, you know, after Bundy was convicted that, you know, they started, Bundy was the, the first killer that 
the FBI started really analyzing and came up with this whole idea of profiling. Question for you as a filmmaker and as a, and as a person, I don't know if you listened to all 60 hours of the, of the interviews that were done with Gacy. What's the sort of cumulative effect of listening to someone who, and you know, in the frontal lobe of your brain has been the perpetrator of heinous yeah. crimes of, with no compassion, no sense of, of the humanity there. What, yeah. what, what, by the time you get done going through that process, what is, how do you process it? How do you, how do you readjust your, your, your humanity? Yeah, no, it's a great question. You know, I've exposed myself to some really dark stuff. And if we met at a party, you'd see I'm actually a funny guy with a <laughs> loving father with, of two wonderful daughters. And, you know, I've only had one wife and we're still married after 32 years. Like I'm a pretty normal guy. Um, and I, but I have had to look into the abyss of evil a few times. Um, you, you have to compartmentalize it, which as brutal as that sounds, I learned a lesson early on in my career. <clears throat> I, my first daughter was about, uh, I don't know, tw 14 months old, 18 months old, you know, still in a crib. And we were, this is 1995. And we were, oh, so she would have been about 11 or 12 months. So not quite a year. And we were editing um, Paradise Lost. And in those days, we would edit, we edited in the city. And I live an hour away. And we edited, we were still editing on a flatbed, you know, the moviola, like editing film as opposed to nonlinear editing. We hadn't yet made the switch to, you know, Avids were just starting to come in to, into being, but Paradise Lost was cut on the Steenbeck, or, you know, which is, you know, cutting 16 millimeter film. And I'm saying that because you had to spend a lot more time looking at stuff editing was a much slower process and that was a particular week where we were going through all sorts of horrible crime scene photos and crime scene footage and autopsy photos and just you know all this horrible stuff that had happened to little eight-year-old boys it was just just stuff it was image after image that nobody should look at unless you're making a film you know or you're in the you know, in the criminal justice business. It's just not pleasant stuff to look at. And I remember driving home and I was thinking about all those images and how gross they were. And then I walked into my daughter's uh, nursery and dropped the arm of the crib down to pick her up and I'm holding her and I'm just flashing on the worst images you could imagine while holding my little daughter. And I really started resenting the project because I just felt like it was robbing me of my fatherly innocence to be holding my young baby while thinking about these horrible things. And like, it just it really disturbed me. And I really had to train myself to like, you know, once I leave the office, you know, now my office is, you know, <laughs> because of COVID and <laughs> I now live in a different place and I have a home, you know, a home office. Now my office is like, you know, 10 feet from my house, but that's a different story. Uh, you really have to separate what you do from your personal life. Uh, otherwise it will bring you down. You know, yeah. it's, it's just, it's, it's just, you got to compartmentalize. Yeah. Well, Joe, all of your projects have been illuminating, revealing, and also 
something to take away from it that we can use in, in positive ways, understanding humanity, but also understanding more about the world we live in. So um, thank you for your work. Thank you for that answer. I, I just, yeah, I can't imagine, you know, on, a, on that level, watching and listening to this, this stuff. The documentary series is called Conversations with a Killer, the John Wayne Gacy Tapes. It is being released on Netflix. It's available now, so be looking for this. Be Check it out. Joe Berlinger, thank you so very much for your time. Thank you so much for all of your work and for spending a little time with us here on Film School Radio. Appreciate it. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. Music